Let's pray. With our whole hearts we cry, O Lord, to you. We pray that you would answer us. We will keep your statutes. We will, we will live within your word. And we trust that when we call on you, that you will save us, that we may observe your testimonies, your, your promises, all the things that you have, uh, have told us that you will do. We will see that. And uh, we rise before dawn and, and we cry for help. We, we raise our prayers to you in the morning and, and throughout the day. And we will put our hope in your words. Our eyes are awake before the watches of the night and we meditate on your promise. Hear our voices according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give us life. They draw near to persecute us with evil purpose, for they are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have we known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Amen. So I want to go back to something that we uh, uh, talked about last week, where uh, we talked about how Jesus has brought his humanity into the Godhead. And um, the, the official name for that doctrine is the, the hypostatic union. Um, and uh, basically bringing the, the, the two essences of, of human and divine, and they become one. And, um, and so this teaching about the unity of, of Christ's divinity and humanity at one, as one person, I think a lot of times we're really fairly comfortable with that in terms of what we confess and believe um, during his ministry. But then that idea that he takes it into uh, heaven with him, uh, it, it kind of seemed like some people were like, wait a second, what? Um, and I think it was Amy that asked for you know, some scripture passages. And, and so I went back in and just, just a little surface on this. And so one passage to consider. Um, in John 1, verse 1, uh, it says that the word became flesh. Um, now, when it says the Word, we're, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the eternal um, second person of the Trinity. Is John writing this before or after Jesus' ascension and return to heaven? Before. Well after, yeah. Oh, he writes it well after. He writes it, yeah. It's not that part of the story. Right. Yeah. yeah. In, in fact, John's kind of weird this way that he starts very differently than all of the other Gospels. You know, you have Matthew, which kind of, it, it goes back to Jesus' humanity, talking about his, uh, his family tree, and then also talking about the angel coming and uh, uh, telling Joseph, you know, to go ahead and take Mary, you know, finding out that, that uh, she's pregnant, and telling him that, you know, this is from the Holy Spirit. Um, Luke, we have kind of this prequel with uh, um, Zechariah and uh, um, Elizabeth and uh, you know, the, the birth of John the Baptist. And, and mixed with that is the angel coming to Mary. You know, and you have the whole Christmas story and that all kind of builds up. You have a little bit of Jesus' childhood there. Um, Mark just jumps right in, um, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're right into Jesus' ministry, like right away. Um, John 
kind of takes this big cosmic view of everything. Yeah, in the beginning was you know, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and the Word became flesh. You know, and he's speaking kind of present. It's, it's a past tense with, a, with a, a present continuing effect. So the second person of the Trinity, the Word, became and is flesh. It's kind of what that, that's saying. That he is still human even in that divine state. Um, Colossians chapter 2, uh, For in Christ the whole fullness of the, the deity dwells bodily. Notice, in Christ the whole fullness of the deity, current present tense, dwells bodily. You know, this is another, you know, so even though Jesus has ascended into heaven, um, Colossians, at the earliest, you're looking probably somewhere, you know, 40 you know, AD, you know, seven to 10 years after um, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven, but still, you know, after Jesus ascended, you know, and still the, uh, the, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. In, I just had a, I had a quick thought about that. Is this um, how we see God in heaven then, in the bodily form of Christ? We would often say that if you want to see God rightly, you have to look at Jesus. So that would be true then. Yeah, you know, and you know, and that goes back to um, John chapter one as well. Um, no one has seen God except for uh, God, the one and only who came from the Father, um, has made him known to us. Um, it's John chapter 1. Wasn't there somewhere in the Old Testament where they went up and at least saw God's feet? No, they saw God. Um, yeah. That's in um, Exodus. Um, it's not that God can't manifest himself apart from a body. Uh -huh. You know, but this is the way that he has chosen to manifest himself. Okay. And manifest, make himself known. Uh -huh. um, and uh, um, so it, back in John chapter 1, um, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So it's Jesus that, it's in Jesus that we can rightly know God. And, and that's important because, you know, we can understand a lot of things, we, we can infer a lot of things about what God is like and who he is just by experiencing life and by looking at the world. But if you really want to know what like, God thinks about you or, you know, what his plan is or what his purpose is for you, the, the only way to really truly know that is in Jesus. Um... And then the other place that I found really intriguing in terms of um, Jesus uh, continuing to be human you know, as he has uh, ascended into heaven is in Hebrews chapter 2. And Hebrews is, Hebrews is a book that I find very difficult. Um, it's difficult linguistically, but I also think that the concepts in here are, are, are really difficult. People complain about Revelation being hard. I'm like, no, I got Revelation. Hebrews is the one that I'm just mm, thinking on. It, it, it 
just dwells so beautifully on the on the Old Testament and and drawing in the the, the meaning of things in the Old Testament. And in chapter two, um, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was. For a long time, people believed it was Paul. Um, some people still do. I don't argue with them. We, you know, we don't know. It could be Paul. Uh, it could be somebody completely different. Um, it, the author doesn't identify. You know who he or even she is. So um, he talks about uh, Jesus being our high priest. And in, in verse 14 and following, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. So, okay, we've got the incarnation and, and that life of, of, um, of salvation. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. We talked about that word. You know, that's that blood sacrifice you know, in order to atone for sins. Uh, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He continues in this position of high priest that just shortly before the text says it was necessary for him to be human to do this work. And therefore, because he continues to do the work, just kind of following the logic backwards, he continues to be human. I'm looking around the room and wondering if I'm giving you problems that you know you didn't have. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there there's some passages to, to kind of think about that that Jesus brings the humanity into the Godhead. He brings his humanity. Yeah. In Philippians. Yeah. Uh, where it says, you know, Jesus brings everything under his control. Will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. It's not. It's will be like his body. So it, our bodies will be like his body at that time. Yep. You know, they'll be perfect. They'll be transformed. But that presumes that he has a body at that point too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know if this makes this better or make it worse. When you look at the scriptures, what you have is, is a storyline and an arc that begins with creation. Then you move into the fall, and this is all very condensed, very right there at the beginning. And then pretty much the rest of the story is, what is God doing with sinners? That comes at, at, at a high point with the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection then his ascension. And then as you move to the end of the Bible, in Revelation, you know, it's talking about a new creation. You know, the, the promise isn't that we, you know, we, we die and we go to heaven and we just kind of float on clouds. I, I think that there is a, uh, I think that there could very well be a, a period of what we would call time 
that we wait as disembodied people for the resurrection. In other words, our souls are with Jesus in heaven. But in the resurrection, we receive bodies. And he doesn't talk about heaven, you know, kind of floating around. He talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. He talks about this world being recreated. A new creation. So you, you literally move from creation through God's salvation story and end with a new creation where we live physically with Jesus and one another. You know, and, and so that, that physical part of, of God's salvation, I think that often gets overlooked, but I, it's actually really important. You know, we're, we're not just kind of ghosts that, you know, get sucked into the force. <laughs> the black hole. <laughs> That's actually not a new idea. The whole Star Wars thing, you know, where you're, you die and you become connected to the, the, the universal force. Um, this is really old. It, it, it's actually got a name. It's called Gnosticism. And what... George Lucas did was he tied that to some Eastern mysticism and yeah. made it his his own you know mythology with it, which some people now you know follow as their own religion. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And I always find it that's kind of a a concept that was that I was exposed to when we did a class on heaven a few years back, and because it was that was made very clear that this and I thought. That's great. It was like everything that we know is just kind of a shadow, a foretaste. And you kind of get that in all of Scripture. Yeah. Everything was a foretaste. The priestly, that was a foretaste. The, the communion is a foretaste. You know, it's just like everything here. It'll be like, what we, it won't be so foreign to us. It'll be more, like a build it'll be familiar. Yeah. But it'll be perfect. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so... When you look at Exodus, when they build the uh, uh, the tabernacle, very specific with the dimensions and everything's really, you know, symmetrical. And I mean, the whole idea is that the thing is gorgeous and it's a reflection of, of heaven in the sense that it is a reflection of God's perfection. You know, and you have these different areas where different actions take place and, and the whole thing is really... It, to point to God is going to fix this creation. And here in the tabernacle, you have kind of a, uh, a down payment. You know, here in this, God's perfection and, and his new creation has invaded the old creation. And you have something very similar to that in Christian worship. When we gather around the Lord's table, and we receive Jesus' body and blood, we talk about that as a foretaste of the feast to come. Well, in a sense, you know, the divinity, the, the, eterni the eternal, has invaded time. And they touch there. And God is bringing the new creation uh, into this old creation and doing this work of transforming us as his people, strengthening us to live by faith, 
living this eternal life that we received in our baptism and strengthening us to get through the, the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I talked about that in the sermon today. Um, until we're in that glorious light where maybe for a period of time we rest, but then in the resurrection, we're whole, body, soul, complete, you know, like Jesus. So, okay, apparently it's time to move on to the next topic. I, I do, I listen to a, a, a podcast where uh, when, when uh, they feel like they've, there's, there's a moderator, and when he feels like they, they hit the point where you know, we need to move on, he has a, a boxing bell. Yeah. Ding, ding! <laughs> okay, next topic. Okay, here we go. So we're, we're um, working our way through Romans chapter 5, and um, uh, I hit verses uh, 6 and 7 and, and started to dig into verse 8 last week, but I'm going to read 6 through 11 again, and then we're going to jump into the, the last part of verse 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 8, he says that this uh, God shows his love while we were still sinners. So... That's a word we throw around a lot, sin and sinners. What does it mean to be a sinner? I think it's somebody who doesn't agree with the Ten Commandments or doesn't follow the Ten Commandments. Okay. But aren't we all still sinners? Yes. Oh. Okay. And we commit sins. Yeah. We are forgiven. Yeah. But... Yeah. And it's that past tense there that makes me, what's the, what's the distinction he's after? Well, what do you think? <laughs> We're justified sinners. Yeah. I'd say that. You know, that's, uh, that's the great um, Lutheran phrase. Uh, We're at the same time saints and sinners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But to be a sinner, uh, I, I think probably on, on, on the first level, you know, kind of what Mo was talking about there. You know, you're talking about a person who um, sins, breaks God's law. Okay. Uh -huh. um, a sinner is a person, that should be lives, I'm sorry, I got a typo there, lives in opposition um, to the divine will. And could that be us? Yeah, we live a lot for ourselves. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, do we ever oppose God's will? Oh, yeah. yeah. So this is a label that 
you know, describes who we are. And I want to think about this in terms of the first three commandments. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. The second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's interesting if you think about these commandments in terms of, of how they uh, address us. The first commandment, then it looks at, uh, um, at our hearts. So what, what's at the center of your heart? What's, what's the core of, of your, your, your fear and your love and your trust? And you know, what are the things that, that your heart longs for? And God says that you, know, you should fear, love, and trust in him above all things. That, you know, that uh, um, you know, to have a God is, that's where we're, we're placing our, our hope and our trust uh, and where we look for blessings and, you know, do our hearts ever long for something other than God and his good and his blessings? Yeah. Go ahead. I just, thoughts jump into my head sometimes. And mm -hmm. I just sort of started thinking of this as sort of a Schrodinger's Lutheran. Okay. <laughs> related to Schrodinger's cat, which is simultaneously dead and alive because of the unknown quantum state within the little box. And Schrodinger's Lutheran is simultaneously a saint and a sinner because mm -hmm. who knows which came more recently, the most recent sin or the most recent forgiveness. It's a, a hybrid state. Or, or maybe it is not a recent or a current. It is just that is the reality. Yeah. yeah and both exist at the same time. It's interesting. I've heard, of course, this goes back to my youth and, you know, those adults from Sunday school classes and such that tell you what is the truth. And one of those was that the, uh, let's see, what was it? One of the, see, you couldn't be forgiven for suicide because you wouldn't have time to ask forgiveness. Right. You know, and, and that sort of runs contrary to that. Yeah, and that that is that is a stance that the church has taken over time, uh, but it's also a, a stance that has moderated. Oh. You know, so depending upon your church body, um, some will say that uh, that suicide is a a, a clear uh, sign of a rejection of um, of the grace and the mercy of God. Oh. You know, but I like uh, I like what Luther says uh, about suicide where he says the devil is tricky yeah you know and especially you know these days we we understand the uh the impact of um uh, well we don't necessarily understand but we have a better grasp of um how mental health plays into issues like suicide uh -huh. you know so shortly after we moved here uh, a young man that had been in my youth group in, in uh, Michigan, um, brilliant young guy. Um, he uh, was working in a lab at Case uh, downtown and uh, got a hold of a, a number of, I, th I don't know if they're barbiturates or what, but he had the cocktail figured out. That was his speciality. You know, uh -huh. And gave up. You know, and... Uh, you know, you know, he talked about uh, in his note to his family 
how you know he is struggling you know, with mental health, and he said the medicines, I I feel nothing, and you know, at least when I'm not on them, I feel something. Except that then he went into this pit of despair, and that's where he ended up choosing to take his life. There's a chemical problem with this young man. Uh-huh. And so I'm finding that you know a lot of people more and more tend to take a more agnostic stance toward things like suicide and say, you know, we're just going to trust God in this yeah, place. I mean, there are people who we might agree or disagree with them, but, but believe they are committing suicide uh, because they believe it is the right thing to do, not because they're depressed and just want out, but more of a feeling of, I've had a full life, and now I, I, I'm just sort of a drag on the family finances and such. And particularly if there's a, you know, a famine involved or something, I mean, feed me or feed the baby, what are you going to do? If you say feed the baby, is that committing suicide? You might even say, you know, Christ really could have come down from the cross. He didn't have to die. He decided to die for good reasons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in a, sense he, in a sense, he was also doing that. Yeah, we usually don't think of self-sacrifice as a, as a type of suicide. Oh, okay. I always I mean, do. I don't know. I, I mean, we, yeah. no, I, it, it, I, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just, yeah, just you no, saying I that... Just, that's not usually, you know, the soldier who gives his life for the, you know, the platoon or whatever, jumps on the grenade. Yeah, you know. jumps on the grenade is a good one because that's a willful. Yeah. As opposed to just, I will expose myself to danger because I believe. But jumping on the grenade is just better to lose me than the whole platoon. Yeah. yeah. But, but isn't suicide in some ways the ultimate in cruelty? It can be. It's incredible what it does to a family. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I can't imagine any more yeah. cruel act than to do that. But you're but, not dealing but, with usually mentally stable people, but still, it is cruel. It is. Yeah. But you know, sometimes what they're thinking is, this is the best thing I can do for my family because I'm causing them problems. I'm getting in people's way. I'm causing all kinds of unhappiness and everything. And it would be better for everybody if I just weren't here. One of the problems is if somebody is mentally ill, a lot of times other people don't know that they are or don't know what to do about it. Right. Uh, my father was shell-shocked in World War II, and he was under doctor's care for years and years and years and never got beyond it, and he attempted it many times. But most of the time, he did it in such a way that somebody was going to rescue him in time. And the last time there was apparently some sign that he had expected to be rescued, but he wasn't. Mm. And from the sad thing is, he thought that if he weren't there, it would be the best thing for his family, and he was right. It was the best thing for us because of his mental condition and his behaviors and his language and all kinds of other things. We had a much healthier life when he wasn't there anymore. Mm. But it was very hard for my mother. She was still in love with him. I don't think any of his children were. Mm. Mm. Um, 
but you don't know because there was indication that he expected this time again for it to be as it was other times and he was going to be rescued. And you don't know if somebody's mind and emotions change between the time that they do it or start to do it and it actually happens. I don't think we can judge people because we don't know what's in their head and what's yeah. in their heart and what their plans were. Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, interesting phrase you know, in terms of judging people. Um, I do think, though, uh, so we don't judge, but we do discern um, which actions do and do not fit with God's plan and, and His um, and His Word as He reveals that to us. You know, and to say that suicide is a is a bad thing, where we're putting our trust in our own actions uh, in order to get out of our own problems and to solve, you know. I think that we can discern that that, yeah. that is problematic and it is painful and it is um, a terrible, terrible thing. Um, can I say, yeah. not, I, we're talking, we're not uh, bringing up the the factor of Satan in all this. And oh, I did. Did you? Okay. Yeah, I, I said the devil's tricky. Uh, yeah, you did. You did say that. Yeah, that's right. But that's what I keep thinking that that so many people, I mean, they've got that, Satan saying, "Go on, do it, do it, do it." Well, this, this—it's—he's—he's he, he's saying that this is this is your solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, there is no hope. That's right. Nobody cares. Nobody loves you. Da, 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 da. Right. And and when you're mentally ill, yeah. y- you're more vulnerable to mm-hmm. listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. To that. And I think when Satan says, "Bother that," he's he's. God isn't going to make this better. I mean, what's God done for you? I mean, here you are. You're in this bad position. You know, God loves you. Where, where, where is that coming up? Where do you yeah. see the love in this thing? Right. Uh, that, yeah. that Satan can use that and, and twist it, that it, to yeah. get you to the point where you 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 becoming God. You're you know, God may have you going through a terrible period in your life yeah. for a purpose. Yep. Uh, and you don't know what that purpose is, and you won't know until you get there, but Satan is on the way of saying, you know, things are really awful. Things are not going to get any better than they are now. You really, you know, if God loved you, this wouldn't be a thing. <clears throat> Why are you doing this? The easiest way is to just, you know, check out. So the, the first temptation, Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? Yeah. Can you really trust God? That, that's that's that first commandment thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I mean we've been speaking about this very specifically in 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 terms of you know this really ultimate rejection of 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 life, but I mean that plays into a whole host of other choices and, and ways that we live, and when we look at where do we place our our hope and our trust when things go wrong in this life, uh, I think you know. If we're honest with ourselves, we can see, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, because I don't I don't trust God, you know, in this area or that area, or at least you know not particularly not to the extent that you know I should. In the second commandment, he gets into how do you talk about God? You know, we usually uh, when we talk about you should not misuse my name. This is really about how do you represent him. You know, we get kind of focused on people saying, oh, my God, or, or you know, um, cursing or, you know, the, you know, using potty language. But really, 
you know, when if we want to honor God's name, we want to speak well of him, and we also want to reflect him with our lips in, in the way that we talk about him. So we say what he actually says. We teach what he teaches. You know, and, and, and so do we always do that? Well, sometimes, no, we, we, we don't like what he has to say. You know, and, and so we'll, we'll change the way that we talk about who he is. You know, or or we'll, we won't represent him rightly either through judgments or through even permissiveness. You know, and and then in the third commandment, coming to the, the the Lord's house for worship, it's really about what are you what are you filling your ears with? What are you listening to? Who are you listening to out there? Are you listening to God's word that His, his word would you know, bring that spirit into your life and, and into your work? So, you know, when you look at what it means to be a sinner, in a lot of ways, it is what's in the core of your heart. Who is there? You know, the words that are coming out of your mouth, are, are they connected back to, well, they are connected back to what's going on in your heart. And are they reflecting who God is and what he's done for you? Well, those words are actually going to flow from also what's going into your ears. And so if those things, your heart, your lips, your ears, if they're not connected to God, then, yeah, they're, they're going to reflect the choices and the attitudes and, and the actions of a, of a sinner. Now, one of the things that... that You've probably heard me say this before, and if you haven't, I apologize that you haven't. And I promise I will keep saying this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So that when we examine our heart, when we examine our lips, when we examine our ears, what we're going to see there is not that, you know, Oh, I'm making all of these choices. We're going to see that this is all just messed up in us. And it's flawed and it's broken in us. Adam and Eve were the only people that ever had what we would truly call free will. To choose good or evil. Our, good, our free will tends to be, uh, yeah, we're free to choose evil. Yeah. It's muddled. I, I choose to sin. I don't know, but I suspect that it's much easier to change from a position of strength than from a position of weakness. What do you mean? That is, if I... There's the obvious thing that's brought up as a bogus thing of, of sort of, well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so what the... You know. Okay. But on the other side of that, if you know that you're already forgiven, I think it's easier to go in and make changes looking forward than it is yeah. to just cower in guilt yes. and say, oh, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. Yeah. And this goes back a little bit, but I used to have a friend who had a habit of slitting her wrists. Mm. And I you know, talked to her about this, the experience. I mean, she was certainly... Uh, aware that she could die, but that wasn't her object. You know, it wasn't like this is going to hurt, but I want death so much. It was like this feels really good. 
it's so important to me to have the blood going out. It's such a purging experience that I will risk death for that. And, uh, you know, this is the only person I've really talked in depth to about that, but that always struck me as being a, you know, a, a profound insight into how things happen with people. Yeah, and it, really get caught up in things. A, a lot of people who cut, they talk about that being they feel alive. Um, yeah. But notice how warped that is. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, and uh, you know, so I, I feel alive in the damage and in the brokenness. Yeah. You know. Um, so you know where you and she felt very much. I think that she was like letting the badness out. Not in a rational way, right? But just in a subjective, emotional way. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we used to do that medically too. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but with slightly smaller. Yes. You know, but when you when, where you started from, in terms of the changes that we make in our life, flowing from the forgiveness that we have been given, so we recognize the sin that's within us. But we've also experienced this grace and this love and this forgiveness. And knowing this allows us then to address the brokenness and the sin, the deadness, in, in, from a place of confidence and hope. Yeah. You know, I, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. That's, that's a true statement. Yeah. Christ has died for me. Mm -hmm. He's taken my death upon himself and given me a new life. And I live as a forgiven child of God. And therefore, my life, uh, I, I'm, I'm not purging myself. I'm, I, I don't have, I can trust that that's, you know, my hope is there in what Jesus has done. And I'm going to strive to live the, 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 uh, the life that God has, has called me to, um, even though I, I'm falling short left and right and center. Um, and, uh, and so in the, this, this sinful state, you know, we define, you know, what's right and what's good and and you know we always kind of look at God like he's holding out on us but as we experience his grace and his forgiveness we learn to trust his promises and 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 he gives us the power to live in that hope um, and uh, and I think it's important to recognize the depth of of the reality of sin in our lives because to recognize that depth then allows us to see the contrast with the incredible grace and the gloriousness of God's salvation at work in us because in verse 9 um, he says since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God so this justified, I, I, I've used this a few times here. Justified means passively made or declared righteous by Christ's blood. You know, the, the, the payment for sin is blood. And Christ says, I'm going to make the payment. And, and so we're declared to be righteous for Jesus' sake. And so we're going to be saved that's a future passive verb, by the way. 
we will be saved. I'm not going to save myself. Yeah. This is this is Jesus' work. This is what He's doing from the wrath of God. He's going to save us from the wrath of God. Now, this idea of the wrath of God—it's not a very popular idea these days. I'm not sure it's a, well in some circles it's been very popular, um, but um, when we think about the wrath of God, uh, you, you think about His revulsion toward evil, um, and His. his the definition that I read says his, his settled displeasure with sin and sinners. So it's it's not a, you know, I'm not sure what I think about this. It's, no, I don't mm, sin. Mm, no, no. We're not having it. And, and uh, well, this tends to not be popular in Christian churches today. Uh, if you go back to uh, a very famous sermon uh, by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, are any of you familiar with this? Do you know who Jonathan Edwards was? Okay, so you have different awakenings, different movements of the Christian faith in, in uh, America. And uh, Jonathan Edwards was part of the first great awakening. Um, and uh, so this big movement where people were coming to faith. And uh, um, in, in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he talks about people being like spiders being hung over the flames because of their sin and you know it, in some ways it's it's just like enjoying the 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 it's a perverse joying enjoying the pleasures of watching somebody else suffer you know i think that's called schadenfreude um but uh you know you read through these sermons and it just talks about the uh the punishments that god is going to dole out on the wicked and in some ways, is it good to know that God is going to punish the wicked? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to bring real justice. That's a good thing. What makes it hard is when you finally realize that you're one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that's also hard about it is um, seeing that that punishment was poured out on Jesus, that you're punished in him that jesus stands in your place to receive that wrath but you know if you're a person who is being abused and somebody grabs your abuser and takes them away is that a good thing yeah 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 you know and and that so when we say that you know god's wrath against sinners is a good thing it means that he's protecting the people that he loves yeah Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that he doesn't love the Abuser, though, too. There's uh, there's this TV show called Lucifer. Yes. And in general, you can't really take the theology terribly seriously. Well, it's a Marvel comic, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting in that how do you make Lucifer be sort of a nice guy? Because he's sort of the, the hero, well, uh, the protagonist of the show. Yeah. And uh, what's going on down in hell? Well, you know, he's up here on Earth. And, and well... The punish, according to him, the punishments of hell are you have to relive your own guilt over and over again. Interesting. That's, and that's that's what it is. He says, you know, they can leave anytime they want, but they just can't break out of. Oh, I should have, I should have, I shouldn't have, and 
and that's what hell consists of. Why he needs all, he has armies of demons, and I don't know what what their job actually is down there, but uh, yeah. So, okay, so that's a, that's a Marvel comic. Yeah. And uh, um, in the Marvel universe, there's a, a show called Loki, um, yeah. Disney okay. Plus. In the most recent episode, that he, uh, Loki kind of gets sent to a, a, a prison, a kind of hell, where he is confronted over and over again by the same thing that he did to somebody. Yeah. You know, interesting. They, the theology been, is consistent. Yeah. Dad has now showed up in that series. And I think the interesting thing is just the character is played, of God is played by the guy for Allstate that says, are you in good hands? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See that? Yeah. <laughs> so the Old Testament has over 580 references to God's wrath. Yeah, so this, this is something that's real. It's something that, that you know we need to be aware of. Nahum chapter 1. Uh, has a, a really strong example of this. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. Uh, those, are, uh, those are areas of, um, uh, of Israel. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth, leave, the earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That That's what we justly deserve because of sin. But in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, it refers to God's wrath as his, his alien work, his strange work. It's the work that... You, you, you ever take on a project and you, know, you, you, you took it on because this is something that I love to do, but then you find yourself pulled into all these other things that you have to do? Of that's that's kind of that's kind of this. So God creates in order to live in love and joy, and then sin enters the world, and He's like, "Now I got to deal with this." Now that's that's not really good theology. What I just said there, but I think it's a good image for what uh, God does in His wrath. Parenting is another example with this. When you have children. I love to punish my children, right? Well, no, you want your children to, you know, be good and to grow and, 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 and to develop and, you know, to have love in the household. But sometimes you've got to confront. Sometimes you have to correct. You know, and, and this is that on a cosmic level. 
And, and so that we, we I, you know, he reveals that th this isn't what he wants to be all about. You know, and so when you look at, at what Jesus does, you know, when he dies on the cross, um, Matthew 27, verse 46, he, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nahum, that's a picture of being God forsaken. You know, he talks about the people he's going to protect in this, but his adversaries are utterly forsaken. With Jesus on the cross, he is forsaken. And so in that moment, what you have with Jesus is this alien work and the proper work come together. I'm punishing sin and pouring out my wrath upon all of humanity in Jesus but at the same time, I'm revealing my love and reconciling people to myself through my son. God's wrath is not the opposite of his love. It actually flows from his love as he acts to protect his people. In order to save us from ourselves. Just like parental love, yeah. or parental wrath, it comes from their love, right? I yep. mean, don't they always say it should, apathy, yeah. apathy would be the opposite of love? Yep. Do what you want. I don't yep. care. Yep. So in, in 10 and 11, you know, this, this, this is the real miracle. This is the good news that we call the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. You know, you have become allies. I'm going to drive the wedge to, to bring you back to myself. And so reconciliation, it's breaking that relationship and then restoring the relationship with God that we can live in love. Now, in verse 11, it talks about that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And uh, th this is one of those places that I sometimes wonder if we really rejoice in this. You know, sometimes we love our sin and we want to cling to it. Um, Augustine was a great leader of the church. He was a, the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt and he did all these great things for the church. But when he was younger, he was a pagan. <clears throat> He, he was actually raised a Christian, fell away from the faith, and, and he gave himself to everything. And he wrote at one point that when he came to faith, you know, he, he was thinking about the, 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 the repentance and turning away from sin. And, and he, he has this prayer where he, he says that his attitude was this, make me chaste. I spelled that one wrong too. Make me chaste, but not yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll give up chocolate next week. I'll turn away from my sin, but let me, I'm going to give up smoke. I don't think that smoking is a sin, you know, like, you know, right. Um, I'm going to give up smoking, but let me have one more before I, I give it up forever. Um, John 8, verse 11. I, um, many of you know Jim Dagley. Yeah. Um, I, I love Jim. I was having a conversation with him one time. And uh, we were talking about forgiveness. And, and uh, this is the story of the woman caught in adultery, John 8. He says, and like it says, you know, there in, uh, in that story with the woman caught in adultery, you know, uh, 
Yeah, you know, go and send some more. <laughs> it's like Jim. It's not what that says. And he's just laughing. And you know, he knew. <laughs> yeah, I always want to drop the first G in that hymn. How can I keep from singing? Oh, <laughs> yeah. How can I keep from sinning? It's yeah. it's hard. This is a constant struggle in our lives. That it when we when we long when we cherish our sin. We want to hold on to those things. We don't want to repent. We want to continue to live the life where I am God, where I fill my ears with what I want to hear and I speak the words that I want to hear. Um, we, we actually start to lose the, the, the joy that comes from being reconciled to God. And it tears at that sense of reconciliation. So, One of my thoughts about that, about... Um, going to heaven and not having any sin is I sin is such a part of me that I'm not going to be such me I mean I'm not going to be am I still going to be me I mean, can't, you know but you'll, you'll, you'll be, be more you. you'll be more you than you are yeah. anyways kind of I can't imagine my life without <laughs> being a sinner <laughs> but I mean I, I mean I don't strive to be a sinner but I just you know, it, it, well, yeah, it's such a part of our experience of life. Right. But it wasn't intended to be part of our experience of life. But I don't know anything else. Right. And, and so, in the resurrection, you'll be more you than you ever were. Yay! <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just got to be the trapeze artist. And you got to let go of what's holding you off to get to the next one. Yeah. yeah. The good thing is, we don't just have a safety net underneath us well, we, we have one who takes us from that trapeze yeah. to the next yeah. and places us safely there so all right we need to wrap up uh, if you haven't gone to church yet go to church um, God's blessings on your week um, I am going to be out of town this week but back for Sunday and uh, we will pick up on verse 12. <laughs>